I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Tuesday the 2nd of March, though we're recording this on the morning of Monday the 1st, St David's Day. I'm speaking with Catherine Moore, a consultant clinical virologist at Public Health Wales, and Rupert Beale, a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute. We're going to be talking about COVID-19, vaccines, variants, and possible ways out of the pandemic. It's almost a year since Rupert Beale wrote his first piece for the LRB on COVID-19. His fifth appears in the current issue. This is his sixth appearance on the podcast. He was full of praise last spring for the advice his lab had got from Public Health Wales when they were developing testing kits. So it's a great pleasure to have Catherine Moore joining us today as well. Rupert, Catherine, thank you both very much for finding the time to talk to me. Good morning. Good morning. So if we start with the good news, the vaccine rollout in the UK seems to be going astonishingly well. A series of early gambles, informed gambles, no doubt, seem to be paying off. The decision to order the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines in large quantities, the decision to focus on administering first doses and delaying the follow-ups, and that all seems to be working. I mean, that, that, that's right. You know, it, it, it's not, as I say, axiomatic that everything we do in this country has to be done badly. <laughs> Some things in this pandemic we're clearly doing well. The vaccine rollout is, is you know, the shining example of that. All sorts of reasons why that's gone well and, and other things haven't. Uh, but I think you've touched on the main points that the um, vaccines that we've bought are the ones that have uh, come to market, as it were, the, the quickest, uh, the ones that have been shown to have efficacy, you, you know, the fastest, but, and also critically the manufacturing capacity has been there to, to deliver them. And then it's been a question of the NHS and indeed many, many volunteers you know, quite literally rolling up their sleeves and, and getting them into people's arms. And yeah, so it's going very well. And are you vaccinating people yourself? There was a possibility you were going to be, but... Yes, I've been vaccinating a few people. So the Francis Crick Institute has set up one of these uh, vaccination centres under the auspices of our, our local hospital. So I've been doing some jabbing and also some consenting of, of, of patients coming through. And it's been very good that we've had so many volunteers. I haven't had to do an awful lot of shifts, which I was somewhat dreading in January that I might spend my entire time vaccinating. But, um, you know, really everyone's sort of pulled together to, to deliver this. And is the programme in Wales the same as as in England is it, is it a UK wide thing Catherine or are you uh, no we we get our own um 
deliveries of the vaccine and, and we deliver those vaccines ourselves. And But pretty much in the same way, we have our mass vaccination centres. We're slightly ahead, I think, in terms of who we're vaccinating. Our population is a bit smaller, but so we can get through them a lot quicker. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, who's who's having the vaccine. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we've reached a million, I think, over the weekend. So that's a, you know, that's a third of our population that's already been vaccinated. So it's all going really well. I mean, in terms of me giving vaccines, then I'm too busy here. But we have a, a nurse practitioner, a specialist nurse practitioner who works with us in virology. And she's currently in the vaccine clinic today, giving out her doses of AstraZeneca vaccine. And other, I mean, the US as well, they're now vaccinating something like a million people a day. Oh, they are phenomenal numbers, yeah. <laughs> and the FDA, they're the Federal Drug Administration. They've just given emergency approval to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and that's a single dose. And it looks as if the European Medicines Agency are going to approve that in the next few days. And they have 26 million doses ready to go. So presumably Europe should start to catch up the rest of Europe should start to catch up with the UK once that happens well the Johnson and Johnson vaccine data is very impressive like you say it's 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 based on a single shot it's similar sort of technology to the AstraZeneca one it's an adenoviral uh, vectored uh, vaccine I suppose that probably the best news from that and this came out um, after my uh, piece piece was published is that it does seem to be reasonably efficacious against the variant that's circulating in South Africa so it gives us sort of a reasonable degree of confidence that the, that the current generation of vaccines will have at least some very useful efficacy against the uh, South African variant strain and probably ones that are similar to it. And presumably the more different kinds of vaccine there are being used, the harder it is for the virus to develop resistance to all of them. Or is that a very naive view of virus evolution? It's a very optimistic view. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I don't think it's I don't think it's um, completely wrong. I mean, generally, the, the vaccines are modelled on the same virus that we first isolated initially from um, the first cases. But what we're finding is the technologies are so good now that you can um, change them very quickly. So if we do have a variant that does evade the response, we can manufacture vaccines which match them a lot quicker. So that's that seems to be one of the really good things which has come out of this pandemic. And I hope really for other infectious diseases as well, that we'll be able to change a lot quicker our vaccine manufacturing from variant to variant, as it were. Because one of the things which Rupert writes about in his piece is this, what you call it, known as EEK, and I can't now remember <laughs> what it actually is, E484K e or whatever. Eight. That's right, yeah. Yeah, is that right? And that switch that makes it much harder for the vaccine I'm going to get this wrong, so one of you should explain it. But it means that that problem can be dealt with quite quickly. Is that what you're saying? Maybe if one of you could explain better than I just have what that EEC problem is. You're exactly right that the, the, the variant EEC is E484K. So that's E, the amino acid, which is it's very negatively charged, very acidic. Uh, position 4A4 in the original Wuhan strain has swapped to K, which is a very positively charged amino acid in uh, several of the variant strains, including the ones circulating in South Africa, one of the ones circulating in Brazil, and, and some of the ones that have been detected, albeit in rather small numbers, in the UK. And that's one of the places where antibodies are known to bind. And uh, the, the charge difference means that in the place that previously was negatively charged, 
where antibodies very often will have evolved a positive charge to bind to it, opposite to tract, that those positively charged antibodies in that particular region will be is, is unable to bind. They'll in fact be repelled by the positive charge, which is now on the variant. And that does seem to be important. So in a, a variety of different um, sort of assays that people use, uh, they can show that the, the level of neutralization of antibodies from people who've been vaccinated or people who have been infected are lower as measured against that variant compared to the Wuhan variant or indeed some of the other circulating variants, including the B117 uh, Kent variant. And that's the reason that they've stopped using the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa? Um, essentially, yes. Um, the, the, there was a, a, a relatively small amount of trial data from the AstraZeneca uh, trials in South Africa, which in that one instance didn't show a, a protective effect. Um, what we call the confidence intervals on that were quite wide. In other words, the the, the real number could be uh, anything between you know sixty percent effective or completely ineffective. So it's a bit difficult to tell. But um, unlike m- most of the other vaccine trials, that in that particular part of one, it didn't show a protective effect. I mean, it must must be um, you know for people who've perhaps had the AstraZeneca vaccine or any of these the older you know versions. I think what you know, we need to sort of make clear as a public health message is that actually any vaccination will help um, reduce severity of disease, even if the um, response isn't complete to that particular vaccine. What we generally find is that, you know, your risk of um, severe disease reduces um, if even if you don't not, you know, completely are completely protected from the disease in the first place. You know, so I don't I I don't think people who've had it should be too worried, you know, in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to them in the future. And and those particular variants, certainly in the UK, aren't widespread at the moment. Yeah, that's good to know. And, and of course, because there are different ways of measuring efficacy, aren't there? Whether it prevents any infection, moderate, severe, hospitalisation, death. There are all these different ways of, of measuring how effective they are. That messaging around the AstraZeneca vaccine does seem to have been a problem in Europe. That there seems to be quite a lot of people in in France and other countries who are not showing apparently not showing up for their appointments because they don't want the AstraZeneca because they've heard it's not as good. And presumably that's any vaccine is better than no vaccine. And the other thing, of course, about vaccination is that it's not about you as an individual. It's about achieving well, herd immunity. That sort of phrase, which actually does mean something when it comes to to vaccination is that right so the more more people are vaccinated with with any vaccine that works the better yes yeah, so we, um so to attain the herd immunity you want as many of the the population to be immunized so that we know that they've got an antibody response you know and we can determine what level of the population is because the idea is that what you want to do is to if should somebody who's not immunized or somebody who's traveled into the country or into a new region who enters a population you want as many of those not to be susceptible to the virus at all and that's how herd immunity works and if this vaccine prevents some of that severe end of infection, you know, albeit in all of those people, it's not preventing infection completely. You're still going to see that that knock on effect, certainly in terms of our um, hospitals, you're going to see less people coming into hospitals, albeit that they may have a mild infection in the community. But that transmissibility also reduces because there's less susceptible population in that, you know, in that 
region to allow that virus to spread more widely. I mean, like I say, we, you know, the data that came from South Africa was was disappointing in terms of, you know, severe infection. But actually that particular variant isn't widely spread in Europe yet. We still have the the, the so-called Kent variant, um, which doesn't have that 484K mutation. So the vaccines are very good towards that. And that's true in Europe as well, where we're seeing it taking over um, some of the other viruses and variants that are circulating there. So, you know, in terms of what we currently have, it's very good. And then what we're seeing as well is the companies are now responding. So certainly Moderna are already developing their next generation assays ready to come into South Africa to actually tackle that 484K. We're monitoring it far more closely so we can see where the spread is, ready to respond should we need to. But it is very unusual for um, any vaccine to fail completely on the basis of a single change, because bearing in mind that your immune response is multifactorial, it's not just to that particular part of the virus. Right. That's that's very good to hear. And, And also that it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't mutate very easily, this virus, does it? That's something which Rupert has made clear in all of his pieces, that it's got... It's it's a... Yeah, for an RNA virus, it's it's um, we. Um, I, I work with some RNA viruses that mutate very readily. This is not a readily mutating virus at all. We might we might start to drive it a little bit faster as our immune response in the population increases. We get that sort of higher levels of immunity. But you know, again, I don't expect it to be mutating in the same way as what we would see with some of the other viruses that we have vaccines for. So flu, for example, where we have to change every year, flu has a very different genetic confirmation. You know, it's, it's very different in the way it, it mutates. So I wouldn't expect it to, to change as quickly as flu, for example. What's happening with Test and Trace? Is that programme going ahead? Is it working any better than it was before or...? Because it's still vaccination doesn't mean we can give up on test and trace, does it? I mean, it's it's, it's as important as ever. It's got a test, trace, protect as a system in Wales. Yeah, it is, but it's it's not it's not run. We we run it um, as part of so public health Wales, the local governments. You know, they they run it. We don't have a company in supporting that. It's 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 run by our own sort of population essentially. You know, so it's our, our public health our local governments they do all of the the contact and tracing and how can you talk a bit about how that how that's working i mean are they managing to to trace most contacts of cases or enough or i mean we we haven't had such a such a problem in wales with with that particular variant i mean that's very that's a very english problem at the moment where we have had variants in the past one of the issues that that we are seeing is um is the turnaround from the result so um bearing in mind that most of these variants are detected using whole genome sequencing there is an inherent delay in the time from the sample being collected to that result being available. So there is always going to be some retrospective look back that's going to have to be required when these these cases are identified. So currently what we're doing at the moment is trying to bring in, um, first of all, rapid more rapid sequence sequencing for anybody of concern, anybody who's return, returning traveller, for example, anybody who's been in contact, we're doing far more um, rapid sequencing in terms of that, so highlighting them first. But then we're also looking at um, new tests as well, which can detect 
detect the variants of concern very quickly just using our standard um, PCR testing. So those are all assays now, just all tests just coming into play, which hopefully will help support us when we're trying to find these variants quickly. But like I say, at the moment, the vast majority of that work has been done through whole genome sequencing, which comes with its own inherent delays. And there's talk in the news today about the so-called Brazilian variant. I know we need to get away from these toponyms, as you've as you say, Rupert, but they're much they're easier to remember than the lists of numbers and letters. That the so-called Brazilian variant has arrived in the UK, and it seems that they're having difficulty tracking down one individual in particular. It, it, where it's all to do with the contact tracing. So they need to find the person to find out where he's been. I mean, this is all retrospective now, isn't it? I mean, this is, um, I mean, he, when was he diagnosed? Beginning of, was it middle of February? It's, it's, yeah, some, some I can't remember exactly, but they're, they're talking about the first or second week of February when the flight happened. Yeah, so this is going to be, yeah, it's 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 the retrospective look back because you never know that the, he may have seeded into an area or they may have seeded into an area um, and you're seeing cases there, but they're not, you know, it might be this variant. And so it's, it's for all of the contact tracing that, you know, that needs to happen around this individual. Um, and, and I think that comes back to people filling in their own forms as well. You know, sometimes people make mistakes. I mean, if it was coming through our laboratory system, it would be flagged very quickly that the information wasn't complete. You know, so I don't know how, how you know, whether it's gone through a lighthouse lab and they just don't have that same barcoding. But I always presumed the barcoding was pretty clear about who yeah. was who and it, and is it a much more worrying variant it has the, it's the 484 which is the key key variant that, at the moment that everybody's worried about and if it contains 484 then that's that's what people are really honing in if it had just been a a, a uk 501y with no 484 then i think people would be less concerned is that right is that your feeling about this report yeah, that, that's right. I, I think we have less data on the Brazilian variant than we do on, say, the South African variant. As far as I know, there aren't any trials which have provably shown effectiveness against it. I mean, you would predict that it would be very similar to the South African one, you know, because it shares that 484K and, and some other mutations, which are quite similar as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is a concern. I mean, I'm sure in the, if you were making a film of this, you'd make catching that one person like the most important thing. <laughs> the film and real life are a bit different. So. Yeah, and, also, and that's such that sort of, I mean, that easy, that individualising fallacy, which, come, you know, people think, I mean, as with vaccination, the idea that it's a public rather than a private good is quite hard to get your head around. I mean, I think that testing programmes can work extremely well as programmes. And that's the way to think about it and not as a series of sort of one-off tests that people take in a haphazard fashion. And the more people do these tests, the better at test, uh, doing them they get, the more, you know, institution. I mean, for the correct, we've been testing everybody individually since, you know, uh, April to, to make sure we're not getting outbreaks within the building. And that works extremely well. It's when you sort of go in with a haphazard, you know, that you take these ones, you take those ones, take this one if you want, not that one then you get into a, a, a sort of mess where you can probably end up doing more more harm than good with testing. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, the one thing that we've had, you know, discussions sort of in the clinical virology world is that we're now doing tests 
which are screens. They're not the same as we're not diagnostically trying to find cases with symptoms and all the things that we're looking around. Asymptomatic screening, you know, in, in with our screening hats on, we have a whole set of algorithms. So if you find a positive, you confirm that positive using other tests and, and that's not happening, which is something which I think a lot of my screening colleagues are finding quite difficult to get their heads around particularly as we go into a low prevalent population so as the the epidemic uh, reduces because your risk of false positives goes up and that's really hard to tell the public what the heck does that mean you know but normally in in you know like if you were going for your cervical screening or your you know breast testing you if you find an abnormality you don't immediately say you've got cancer you do a whole list of tests to confirm that result and that hasn't been happening. And yeah, so when we've had screening people in our meetings, when we've been look, talking about testing strategies, that's the one thing that, you know, they've really struggled with. You know, we don't have that, you know, belts and braces approach that we would normally have around screening programmes. Once it is more under control and vaccination is more widespread, would you need to have a screening programme for COVID or not really? Because it's not the kind of thing that if you have a, if you have a decent vaccination program, you don't need a screening program. I mean, it d- depends. Well, it depends what level you've got it down to. I mean, it, it, if it's down to a sort of fairly low level, but you're still at risk of outbreaks with you know pockets of unvaccinated people, obviously you need to keep that up. And, and my guess is we'll probably need to have Catherine. You may be able to talk more about this. We'll probably need to have restrictions on travel for some while, or at the very least testing it, it, under those circumstances, just in case we do get. You know, potential variants of concern arising uh, elsewhere. Uh, but yes, once the great bulk of the population is vaccinated, the prediction would be that the transmission will go down very low. And, you know, this um, sort of um, huge effort that we're having to put in correctly and uh, to put into uh, testing and, and isolation and so on will, will drop off and we'll be in a much more normal situation. We, we move into what we call enhanced surveillance mode, which we do all the time for flu. So we have a network um, of laboratories around the world which monitor flu circulation and, and emerging flu types, um, so such, such as H5N8. And uh, what we look at is, is changing the virus over time, but in a surveillance network. And I suspect that as we move into that and the vaccine uh, you know, uptake is good and we know that you know, we've got a bit more information about how long it's likely to last and whether we need to keep monitoring the surveillance net- networks will fit in you know and start start acting as they should at the moment it's very difficult to do surveillance at the moment when you're testing everybody because you don't know what your population is that you're measuring but once once we're able to do that i think you'll you'll see those kick into action really well and we're certainly starting to look at it for the vaccine um ef- efficiency you know the effectiveness um so we're already starting to do some surveillance around people who have been immunized and should they acquire an infection or become infected after their immunization we can look at those viruses in a, in a bit more detail and that surveillance for flu also enables you to develop the vaccine sort of predict, predict and, yeah. that's right yeah it, it informs yeah informs it informs about um changes certainly in the antigenic recognition so it's how our immune response recognizes we can monitor those more more effectively um, but like I said, it's still a very new virus. We don't know, you know, the 484s come as a bit of a blow for people because we, 
you know, is it going to accumulate around that if we let it keep going? You know, and if it does, what's that? What does that mean for the vaccines that we have? So it's important to keep transmission low in the population to prevent that likelihood occurring, that likelihood of variants emerging. And that means continuing to wear masks and, and that kind of thing as well for a while? Or is that hard to say? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, we still have a lot of virus. I mean, it, 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 the, the, the R number is below one. That's good. And it's going to carry on coming down, I imagine, for, for some while. Uh, but there's still quite a lot of virus out there. So if we, you know, relax the restrictions at the moment, we would be in a situation where you've got uh, a high amount of, as it were, selective pressure on the virus to evolve to escape immunity and also a high amount of virus circulating, which is the, the highest chance, if you like, of um, generating uh, variants that resist immunity. So that's that's why it's really important to, to keep suppressing uh, the virus at the moment. Uh, you can also see it, I mean, if we were in a situation where we hadn't got any restrictions and we had people coming into the country, let's say with the Brazilian variant, then, you know, the difficult job that's being uh, undertaken at the moment with, with, with tracing those individuals would become virtually impossible because it wouldn't just be the case that you're, you know, trying to work out if they seeded somewhere. They would have seeded everywhere, you know. They'd have come into contact with loads of people and, and we'd have this variant spreading you know, pro- probably reasonably rapidly, assuming that it does at least partially escape immunity. So that's the uh, situation we're in and why, why it's important to be extremely cautious uh, as, as regards relaxing restrictions cautious optimism we can be optimistic if we can be cautious <laughs> that's, how I, that's how i put it optimistic caution not cautious optimism optimistic yes caution. <laughs> yeah. and looking ahead without putting any dates on it to when we finally emerge from the pandemic um, in your piece rupert you described two possible ways out either sars-cov-2 becomes another endemic coronavirus giving rise to large numbers of infections in, in winter, or possibly every other winter. Or we manage, and the comparison you make is with measles, um, to eliminate it. And that's obviously the more desirable outcome. But um, what does what does elimination mean? And um, how achievable is it? How would you set about? Well, I, I mean, it, p- people immediately say that, you know, measles is a very different virus to coronaviruses, and they'd, they'd be absolutely right. And, and the vaccine we have for measles has been extremely effective, and it hasn't really needed updating since, I think, the 60s. So, Catherine, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, it really has been going a very long time. And it's not because the virus itself is inherently a very stable one. It mutates rather more quickly, in fact, than uh, intrinsically rather more quickly than coronaviruses is because the the target of that vaccine is something that's very difficult for the virus to change if you see what i mean so that that that, that's sort of why it's such an effective such an effective vaccine so it's, it's really not so much about the virus in this case it's really about the effectiveness of the vaccine so it let the reason i give the two scenarios is as follows so um, we know that natural immunity to the circulating uh, seasonal coronaviruses that we have is not sufficient to prevent reinfection. And there are probably two main reasons for that. One is that uh, immunity wanes over time. So, you know, if you got infected with one of the seasonal coronaviruses five years ago, the amount of immunity you'll have will be less than if you were infected with one last year. And the other is that there, there is you know, evolution taking place with, with these viruses and they undergo something we call antigenic drift, which means that slowly over time, um, the match for um, the immunity that you had to 
uh, one of these seasonal strains sort of declines. In other words, that the, the virus has uh, evolved mutations that allow it to partially escape immune responses. So if the vaccines that we have are really only going to be as good as naturally occurring immunity, the expectation would be, a guess, because, you know, it, it, we're predicting into the future, that you would end up with uh, SARS-CoV-2 ending up very much like one of these seasonal coronaviruses, that because people have been infected in the past, they have some partial degree of immunity to it, so they're less likely to get severe disease, but still over time they might become reinfected. The, the reason I bring up the comparison with measles is because, like Catherine was mentioning, the vaccines we have to these viruses, these new kinds of vaccines, the RNA vaccines, the adenoviral vector vaccines, they're not just incredibly effective, but they may also be ones that we can update more rapidly over time so that we can not just perhaps catch up with the virus, but if you like, get ahead of the virus, predict what circulating variants are going to be, match the vaccine very quickly to them and get to a point where so many people in the population have had a vaccination which is likely to protect them, not just against the variants at the moment, but the future variants that we might be able to really completely eliminate it from, from the population. Now, by eliminate, I don't mean get rid of to zero everywhere in the world. I mean get down to very, very low levels uh, within a defined population. In this, in this case, it could be the population of the UK. Um, so, again, a comparator. Catherine will have seen many cases of, of measles during the course of her career. I've only ever seen one case, you know, as a, as a, as a medical doctor. So it's really now very, very rare. And, of course, it used to be an incredibly common childhood infection. So that's that's what I'm talking about when I say get to elimination and why measles is to some extent a sort of a reasonable comparator if we can get the vaccines that really work against all the future strains. And do you share that assessment, Catherine? Yeah, um I think it is it is feasible if we if we can get enough of the population immunized. I mean we don't actually know yet what that um herd immunity level is actually required yet for this particular virus. That's normally calculated once we know what the vaccine effectiveness is and the R number of the virus, should it be in a susceptible population. You can work out then from that the number of people needed to be immunised to eliminate a virus. So, for example, measles, which is um, one of our most infectious viruses, is probably currently the most infectious virus known to man. You have to have a, a vaccine. So that's two doses of vaccine up in the high 90s to prevent transmission in the population. Now, it's very likely that the, that the R number for this virus is nowhere near measles. Measles is, you know, 14 to 20. You know, it's a huge, huge number compared to what we've got now. So you may find that actually if we get to levels of maybe 60 to 70 percent of the population, that would be enough to help prevent some of that transmission going on in the community. My real concern is vaccine inequalities and inequities that we're seeing in the population at the moment. So we're seeing little cohorts of um, certainly um, BAME people are not getting their immunisations for whatever reason. Now, whether that's because they're not able to access some of the mass testing centres, mass mass vaccination centres isn't clear. But then also we have countries in the world, you know, which don't have um, the same health system Systems that we do in 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 the West, who um, have zero uptake at the moment. There is no vaccination going on in some countries, and that to me is a real concern because, like measles, what you always have is a risk then of reintroduction into a population. Because bearing in mind, we have to maintain these vaccines um, year on year to keep that elimination status. And certainly, what we saw in with measles 
is as soon as um, you have the MMR levels drop um, below sort of 80 percent, you have this you can have these huge outbreaks occurring because there's no immunization. So it's not just now where we're all motivated to get our immunization. It's going forwards as well. And whilst this virus exists in the world, there's always a risk that, you know, we can reintroduce it into areas that perhaps have taken their, their, their eyes off the ball in terms of getting their keeping their immunization rates up yeah and the, i mean last week there was talk about the, the first six hundred thousand doses of astrazeneca vaccine made in india arrived in ghana and that's great that that's happening but it's still very small numbers isn't it i mean it needs to be you know the global push needs to be a lot stronger than it is now i mean there was yeah, there were some lovely um, sort of comments made on social media, you know, because we know that the the risk of this infection for, you know, in terms of their your own personal risk um, increases in with the age range, you know, so as you get older, you're more likely to get severe illness. And I, you know, and, and I know people are quite willing, you know, to carry on maintaining the mitigation if that vaccine that is destined for them being a healthy young person perhaps would be you know spread a bit more evenly globally we've bought a lot for us and seem to have forgotten that there are countries that are not going to have the same access you know and they they are being you know dramatically affected by this virus as well i suppose there's also the question of (laughs) it's a bit early to be talking about this but also the next pandemic virus that comes along that what have we (laughs) that there's but presumably up to point, what we've learned, well, what we, what you have learned from studying SARS-CoV-2 this year, the the massive amount of scientific research that's been done on this virus and on tests for it, on the incredibly rapid vaccine development, that a year ago it wasn't clear it was possible to create vaccines against coronaviruses, and now we have half a dozen. So how many of the things that you've learned and the technologies that have been developed will be will you be able to take forward against other viruses? I just partly a tweet of yours that I saw last week, Catherine, that you're talking about looking forward to being able to use some of the, the tools you have for, for other viruses. Yeah, not not just the tools. Um, I mean, it'd be lovely if we can, I mean, there are, you know, children every year affected by enteroviruses, for example, and, you know, and and RSV is another virus, which is currently vaccines are being produced for that, for that virus. So RSV stands for? Respiratory syncytial virus. It's a, um, a, an infection that very young babies get. Um, causes bronchiolitis and we see um, peaks of it every winter um, with high levels of children brought into hospitals and in some countries you know obviously where where you have children who are very vulnerable um, it is a significant cause of pneumonia and mortality in other countries as well Um, but there are vaccines on the horizon for those and and you know it just makes me quite sad that actually we hadn't put that much effort into a virus that you know has been circulating for such a long time with some of these newer technologies and yet suddenly a new virus comes along and we've responded so quickly but yeah I, th- I think if we can take the take it forward and and adapt it but also um the the certainly the networking that we're getting from this as well i mean you know never before have uh, a lot of services come together to 
try and to support a response. So testing, academic centres setting up their testing, um, you know, the hospitals working with screening services. It's it's been quite remarkable how we've kind of developed a, you know, really good network of uh, of virologists, epidemiologists, you know, not just not just the armchair ones, but you know, like you know, people who do it as a as a as a day job. You know, we are actually talking together like we've never done before. I'd like to see that going forward because it, it's all of this together which will help us fight the next pandemic. Catherine Moore, Rupert Beale, thank you both very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You can read Rupert Beale's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Terry Castle on Patricia Highsmith. Rosemary Hill on London's West End and Colin Tabin on Francis Bacon. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.